It's good to, uh, to see all of you this morning. I'm glad you chose to be here today. If you think about it, coming here was one of many choices that you've already made this morning. You chose whether to get up when the alarm went off this morning or hit the snooze. I suppose there's a third option that some of you may have employed. Uh, you chose last night whether to even set the alarm at all. You chose whether to eat at home or to hit up the free donuts in the cafe here. You perhaps chose whether to drive your own car here, to take the bus, to walk, or steal the Camaro from your neighbor down the street. You guys didn't know that was an option, did you? The average American makes 35,000 choices a day. And you think that given that many, that we'd be better at it. But everybody has that person in their life that when you pull up to the McDonald's drive-thru, they act like they've never been there before. And it takes them three minutes to choose what to get, even when the cars are piling up behind you, and the guy running the window has moved you to the potential spit-in food level two. And even at two minutes, this person, and it could be you, uh, starts uh, asking the person that actually knows what they're getting questions. Two minutes in, uh, what are you going to eat? You want to share a drink? Okay. Sometimes we stink at making choices. See, the interesting thing about choices is that by choosing to do, say, or commit to a particular thing, you are implicitly choosing to not do, say, or commit to something else. When I chose to marry my wife, I implicitly said no to every other woman. When I get the southern-style chicken at the McDonald's, and I know what I'm getting before I pull in, by the way, I'm saying no to the Big Mac, the double quarter pounder, the new Angus beef sandwich thing, and a host of other things that don't come with the southern-style chicken meal. Choices not only demonstrate what we agree to or accept, but also what we reject. Or perhaps what is most often the case, our choices indicate a measure of value. When we choose, we put priority over one thing versus the other. If I choose the southern style chicken, which I do, over the mixed salad, I've chosen what tastes good over what is good for me. In that way, our choices also carry consequences that are beyond the moment. After three weeks of McDonald's visits, when I find myself 15 pounds heavier, I will be facing the consequences of my previous three weeks worth of choices. Choosing what tastes good versus what is good for me, uh, excuse me, what is good for me is not a choice made in a vacuum. Choices have lasting consequences. There is a, uh, there's a story that started in the 1950s about a, there was a Canadian woman who died after eating a horse, a cow, a dog, a cat, a bird, and a spider. And it never would have happened had she not chosen to swallow a fly first. That was way funnier than you guys are acting. I mean, that, that was great. All right. Our choices have lasting consequences. Okay, it's not a guffaw, all right? It was, it's a mild bit of comedy. If we, uh, if we think about our choices in this way, making 35,000 choices in a given day is a monumental undertaking. Choices put us in the position to compare and contrast one option versus the other ones, to count the cost of doing one versus the others. It also puts a responsibility on us to make informed choices. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 14. We'll start reading in Luke 14, 25. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, let's break this down a little bit. Why are great crowds? He's Jesus. That's why. But this big crowd doesn't know that he's Jesus, son of God. To most of them, he's Jesus, son of Joseph, with a 20-80 split on being either Lord or lunatic. But they are accompanying him because his teaching and actions are drawing attention. He healed a guy on the Sabbath, the day when the Pharisees, the uber-religious folk of the day, said you shouldn't be doing anything. So those guys are tailing him because he's making them mad, and he's usurping their authority. He's also attracting villagers and other folk because he's healing people, he's casting out demons, he's feeding thousands of people. Most of these people in the great crowds are curious. There's a kind of spectacle atmosphere around Jesus. And the people kind of want to peep into it. They're kicking the tires of this thing, sniffing it out. So Jesus turns to them and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let's talk about the word hate in this example so that it's not a stumbling block to our understanding. Hating is a, is a Semitic expression for loving less. Now, there's always a danger when you go to the language, the underlying language, because people seem to be able to say whatever they want after the phrase, well, in the Greek or in the Hebrew, and then they say something that doesn't sound like the thing that it started out being. But if we vet Scripture with Scripture and let that help us with the definition, we can get here. Genesis 29, 30-31 is talking about a man named Jacob and his two wives. Uh, starting in verse 30 of Genesis 29, it says, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So in verse 29, we are told that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. In verse 30, it says, the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Now, coming from the basis that Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that God is infallible and unlikely to mistake loving less, with our modern sense of the word hate, the use of hate or hated in this way confirms a consistent use of the Jewish phrase to mean love less. There, problem solved. Next time someone uh, accuses you as a Christian of following a God that wants you to hate your mom, you can resolve that and move on with your day. Now, although sometimes difficult to, ablot, to apply, what Jesus is saying back in Luke fourteen twenty six is actually pretty simple to understand. If you are to be my disciple, you must love me more than anything else in your life. Your allegiance to God supersedes your allegiances in all your other relationships. It's saying that, as we talked about earlier, choosing one way implicitly means that you are not choosing the other things. By choosing to love God more than anything else, you are choosing to not love anything else above Him. It's a hard word, isn't it? Love something more than my kids? More than my wife? More than my spouse? That's a pretty hardcore thing for Jesus to say. Now, obviously, if we're taking in the full counsel that the Bible has to offer, we know that we are to love and serve others in the way that Jesus loved us. But on its face, Jesus is asking for us to reorient our lives. Why did he say this now? There's a great crowd following him around. Lots of opportunity to positively influence their faith during the rest of his time on earth. 
But he chooses this time to turn around and lay this thing on him. What a way to put him off, right? I, he, he, this great crowd's falling around, and he's like, I know you're here for the miracles and the atmosphere and stuff, but give up everything you have and follow me exclusively. Why does he do that? Because there's a difference. There's a difference between following Jesus around and actually following Jesus. There's a difference between hanging out at his church and checking out his book and being his church and devouring his word. There's a difference between agreeing with God with your mouth and having your actions reflect that he is real, relevant, righteous, and Lord. There's a difference between checking the box saying, yep, we are to make disciples, and actually making decisions, choices, that reflect a life that desires to make disciples. Jesus is turning to these folks that are following him around, and he's laying it out for them. He is not the author of confusion. He's up front, he's clear, and he's transparent. Before you get too enamored with this spectacle, before you get too comfortable in this crowd, I want you to know what you're getting into. Jesus is saying, I want you to count the cost. He continues with the example in verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. The general thought here is that the tower in this case is either a a watchtower over a wine field uh, or maybe a grain tower uh, for storing the harvest. It's a functional thing that this guy's looking to build. It's a very relevant example for us because we're in the middle of a campaign to build a tower. And right now, we're counting the costs. The cost to renovate into something, excuse me, the building in in the attached open lot is $330,000. The cost to renovate into something that is functional and worth moving into will bring the total cost to around $1.2 million. That's the cost. Do we have enough to complete it? That's what those red envelope commitments are all about, right? The one-time commitments will tell us if we have enough to make the down payment of $75,000. The sweat equity commitments will tell us if we can do enough of the work to get that down payment down to the $75,000 level. The long-term commitments will tell us if we can get the down payment, whether we can afford to pay for the cost of the building long-term. If we can't get the commitments, we'll stop planning a tower. We don't want to be on the other side of the mocking dude who says, look at that church that started to build something. And couldn't finish it. We need to recognize here that Jesus is presenting the crowd with a choice. You can choose to follow me, be my disciple, or not. Here's the cost. You have to put me above everything else. Your choices should reflect that I am Lord of your life. And that brings us back to choices. 35,000 choices a day. What are we doing with our choices? What priorities do they reflect? A few weeks back, uh, a man and I, my wife and I, uh, and the two kids were sitting in our bed, and I started to read uh, Genesis uh, out loud. We got through the six days of creation and stopped at the beginning of Genesis 2, and it reads like this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. 
And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. At this point, I stopped and asked uh, Emma, my six-year-old, I said, why, why do you think God rested? Did he need a break? Was he tired? Now, she's old enough and has been dealing with me long enough uh, to know when I'm asking a leading question. If there's a false answer that is potentially compelling, I'll try to ask that as part of the question to make her think before she answers. Anyway, she confirmed that God indeed does not get tired. And holding out for the potential that he simply wanted to hang out with the animals for a day, she wasn't ready to venture a guess as to why he rested. I explained, as Jesus, Jesus noted in Mark two twenty-seven, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I explained that God rested as an example to us that it is not good for us to toil and labor with all of our days, that we should have a day that is set apart for rest, fellowship, time with God, and family. And then it hit me. As I explain this relatively simple concept to my six-year-old, that I have failed here. Massively. You see, every day for the past, you know, ten and a half years, I've worked a 40-hour-a-week job downtown at a local insurance company. I also work here at Pathway, and that, especially over the last few months, um, takes a lot of time on nights and weekends, and certainly Sunday. Uh, as most of you know, I host a radio show on Monday nights that takes a decent amount of work to put on and to distribute to the various media points that it gets to. I have a young wife and two daughters that I'm responsible for leading, uh, parents I'm responsible for visiting, and a world I'm responsible for evangelizing. Now, mine's not a unique story, right? I mean, many of you live in a very similar circumstance, similar lives with similar competing priorities. But the fact remains that I do not observe a Sabbath. I work on Sundays. I work in some way or another every day. Is there an incorrect vision in any of my priorities? No. The church work and the radio show are for the glory of his kingdom. Leading my family is a responsibility that was decreed by God. That insurance job keeps a roof over my head and food on the table. These are all important things that I've chosen to do. But my choices, and they are all choices to do all of these things in the way that I'm doing them, are also choices to not Take a Sabbath. Do I really have a right to contend with the creator of the universe who rested on the seventh day, not for his benefit, but for mine? That although I appreciate the gesture, I'm going to have to pass because I'm too busy pursuing his work? It's not going to fly. You know, in the past, if someone were to approach me about not taking a Sabbath, I might say something like, ah, you know, I know, I know. I, I just don't have time to fit it in. But that, it's not true. There's a finite amount of time in a day, but I do get to choose how I spend that time. Choices. Ever pass a homeless guy on the skywalk or on the street? What might you say if they approach you for money? Sorry, man. I don't, I don't have any money. Really? That seems a little hard to believe. If you didn't have any money, you'd be him. You'd be the guy hanging out on the street corner asking for someone else's help. The truth is, you have money. You just can't or don't want to direct anything to this guy. You're on your way to lunch. Your mortgage is due in a few days. You don't have any cash and don't feel like going to the ATM. The question isn't whether there are good reasons to give or not to give. It's a hypothetical homeless man. He could have nefarious uh, means behind it. I don't know. Right? It's not the point. The point is, the phrase, sorry man, I don't have any money. Does anybody have a friend or a relative that spends time helping the less fortunate? 
You ever thought to yourself, boy, I wish I had time to help too. You do. The person that you know that helps others, they get the same 24 hours in a day that you get. They're just choosing to spend it differently than you are. And it is your choice how you spend those hours. And yes, choices aren't made in a vacuum, right? They have impacts, sometimes major impacts on your life. But often, even when you don't think you have a choice, you have a choice. Oftentimes when we say we can't do something, what we really mean is that we don't want to do it because it will impact our lives in a way that is simply not acceptable to us. We take things that are ultimately choices and treat them as confines, barriers, or protection against competing priorities that may infringe upon them. But our language is deceiving. Even those barriers are still our choice. So after thinking about that Sabbath discussion with my daughter, I had to consider what my choices were in light of my current situation. See, I could drop the radio show, but that's really not enough time to free up a, a Sabbath. Could I give up working at Pathway? I feel like God has me here for a purpose. Could I cut down my hours at my other job to create some space? We'd have to radically change how we live, including downsizing what was already a fairly small house, and perhaps giving up a second vehicle. But it could probably be done. Now, the issue for me is short-lived at this point, because as of April, I'll stop working my current job, and I'll be working here full-time. But had I been thinking about this in the right light one year ago, I'd have some serious decisions to make. Ultimately, how you spend your time and money necessarily brings to light how you are not spending your time and money. What you choose to prioritize is also a choice on what you are not prioritizing. Sometimes we need to be reminded that we indeed have a choice in the things that we do. Now, some of you are facing this right now. In relation uh, to our upcoming building project, last week Dan talked about sacrifices, right? Using the example of David purchasing the land for the future temple and refusing the gift of the man that owned the land. David said he would not offer something to God that didn't cost him anything. In response, as a church body, we were encouraged to make a sacrifice so we could obtain this building for the furthering of the work of making disciples. In a reaction, you know, some of you went home and you looked at your money situation for the one-time gift that is needed for the down payment, and you thought, man, I'd, I'd love to help. I really would, but I have very little, if, if anything, to give. Or you thought about the sweat equity commitment, and you looked at your schedule and you thought, man, I'd love to help. I really would, but I have very little free time, if any, to give. And you looked at your long-term finances and how you spend your money and thought, man, I would love to help. Seriously, I would, but I don't have anything I can give up. Now, it would be easy for me, and frankly, way more comfortable, to respond to that situation and say, I know, man, times are tough. I totally understand that you're leveraged. You're obviously made good choices with your time and money, and you're just in a difficult circumstance that you can't control. And to be fair, that could certainly be true. For some of you. And if it is, stop feeling guilty about that. God didn't create you to feel that way. You know your circumstances. I don't. You know your situation. You know your choices. I don't. But if we're all being honest with each other, and at the very least, I'd ask you to be honest with yourself, that simply isn't the case for everyone. You see, you've made choices. I've made choices, right? You've set priorities. I've set priorities. And by those choices and priorities, we find ourselves leveraged. 
To be honest, we have shackled ourselves. We've lost the very ability to choose because often we're in chains. Some of us have leveraged ourselves with our money. We're house poor. We extend car loans out for as long as seven years so we can scrape by with the payments each month. The phrase, you are in debt, is not a full rendering of the situation. We are not just in debt. We are in debt to someone, some party, some institution, some person. Your monetary freedom has not been taken away. It has often been given away by choice. Proverbs 13.8 tells us that the ransom of a man's life is wealth. Some of us have leveraged ourselves with our time. We are committed to be too many places, doing too many things, way too often. And we have allowed the culture that we live in to move the needle as to what is the appropriate use and amount of time to spend doing these things. If God were calling you to join a Bible study, to teach a Sunday school class, to come alongside a close friend who's in a rough patch of their life, to make a commitment to personal prayer time, to Sabbath, you simply don't have the room. Leveraged. Some of us have leveraged ourselves in our relationships. We are too many things to do many people. And often not the main thing, the right thing, to the right people. We continue in Luke 14, verse 33, Jesus says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Those are hard words. Even to those of us that are seasoned in our faith, maturing, those are hard words. And remember who Jesus is talking to. Those folks that are kicking the tires. He doesn't restrict this information to the already committed follower. It's also for those that are feeling things out. Those who aren't convinced that he's even God. Count the cost. Make the choices. The question we really need to answer is when it comes to your life, what's on the table? Or probably more likely, what's not on the table? Are there things in your life where you've said, or by the choices you've made, I'll renounce most things, but I'd like to hold on to this thing or that thing. Proverbs 19.21 says that many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Do our choices reflect the mind of the man or the purpose of the Lord? When it comes to fulfilling the purpose of the Lord, are there things we have simply taken off the table? As you're pondering, What's on the table for you and what's not? Let me remind you what God has on the table for you. His love. He loves you. I want you to soak that in. Romans 8.38 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The creator of the universe loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross so that you could sit at his table. Take part in his banquet. And he wants you undistracted at that table. He will not permit your guilt, your worry, your strife, your past regrets to come with you. He's taking care of all of that. I want you to try to visualize this just a little bit. It's beyond our time. We don't, we don't think great banquets anymore, right? But, but you walk into a room and there's this huge table, like white linens everywhere. 
Okay? Place settings of gold and a huge feast. It's a great meal, and it's set before you in the company of a king, and you have no worries, no cares. Every wrong has been righted. Every mistake forgotten. Every slate has been wiped clean. And I want you to imagine that feeling as the king at that table looks at you and he smiles. And he says, welcome to my table. I've prepared a place for you. Sit with me. Enjoy my hospitality. Romans 8.17 tells us that we are heirs to the kingdom, joint heirs with Christ. An heir, someone who gets to inherit the kingdom of the Father. At his table, God has prepared a place that is worthy of Jesus. But it's for you. In other words, he's offering you everything. That's what's on his table. Choices. The cool thing about having 35,000 choices on a daily basis is that we constantly have the option to choose differently. We have the chance to reprioritize. We have the chance in the choices we make to recognize what we are rejecting by the things that we are accepting. We have the choice to move those things that we had previously taken off the table, the things that we had declared off limits to God and his purpose, and put them back on. We have the choice to submit to God, to repent of our sin, to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, and to accept his invitation to his table. I encourage you to choose this day whom you will serve. I encourage you this week to choose to commit time to praying about your choices. I encourage you this week that you put all of your choices on the table. I encourage you to pray this week that God would grant you the courage to make choices, even if they are hard, that further his kingdom and bring him glory. I encourage you to delight in your choices as opportunities to pursue the will of God in your life. Let's pray.